1: There was a terrific piece about sex work in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, which is kind of shocking. A lot of daily papers, including the New York Times, don't really cover sex work in a smart way or an empowering way or a way that's realistic about sex work, about prostitution, about uh, online sex ads. But this piece by Robert Kolker, who's a contributing editor in New York Magazine and the author of a book called Lost Girls and Unresolved American Mystery that's forthcoming, was really smart about sex work and about how the internet has really impacted sex and it, the piece doesn't stigmatize sex workers, which is huge because usually any piece that's written about sex workers either shames and stigmatizes sex workers or pathologizes them or falls into this. All people who are doing sex work have been sex trafficked and there's no way for sex work to work without it being exploitative and abusive. And The piece goes into really the impact of the, that the web has had. Uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from it the web has been the great disruptor of any number of industries, transforming the way people shop for everything, and commercial sex has been no exception. Posting ads online, escorts find clients without ever having to leave home or walk the streets. One of the experts that Kolker quotes says that the internet said to be the solution to many problems was expected to legitimize the entire field of prostitution, elevate the underclass, uh, and make pimps a thing of the past. Uh, Because so many people who used to Walk the streets was just dangerous, or go through escort agencies that would rip them off, that would keep two thirds or three quarters of the uh, of the hourly rate, or be preyed upon by pimps who would market them and steal their money. Could just put an online ad up and go into business all by themselves, and it was safer and more lucrative and more empowering. And here's where I need to tell you that this piece by Kolker is about the victims of the Long Island serial killer, ten women, all of whom were sex workers, all of whom were posting ads online. All of bodies were found on a beach in Long Island wrapped in burlap and buried in the sand. The Long Island serial killer who's preying on uh, sex workers and escorts in New York City hasn't been caught. Uh, obviously, eliminating pimps and the falling barriers to entry around sex work hasn't made sex work perfectly safe. Some would argue because sex work is unsafe that it should be banned, that it should be illegal, that the prohibition should remain in place and – Any sex workers' rights activist will tell you that that prohibition often makes sex work less safe. So because sex work is unsafe, people who oppose sex work being legal or legalized or decriminalized want to keep these laws in force that actually make it even less safe than it could be otherwise. It's a little bit of a catch-22. It's a little bit of a logical shitstorm, fallacy, fuckwittedness that props up unsafe and illegal sex work. Back to Coker's piece. Of course, if capitalism teaches us anything, it's a, a demand-heavy market. will find a way to thrive no matter the obstacles. That's what we see with prostitution now. Illegal everywhere in the United States except Nevada somewhere and it thrives. It thrives despite throwing prostitutes in jail. It thrives despite busts of johns and rounding up of johns. The, the, the market – continues to meet this need. There is demand and the demand will be met. There is money to be made. That money will be made. Kolker points out that the demand – this demand sustains human trafficking and underage escorts engaging in survival sex, which is a huge problem. If you, like me, think that sex work should be legal, that people have a right to control their own bodies, that if it's legal to have sex with someone, and if it's legal to be paid to have sex on film, to appear in pornography, that there should be nothing illegal about selling your own time and energies to someone uh, that if that is what you choose to do. But that's the problem with sex work is that some people engaged in it, some people trapped in it aren't making a free and clear choice. Some people by economic circumstances aren't making a free and clear choice. A lot of the women that Colker profiles in this piece wound up doing sex work because they couldn't make a living. Even with a high school degree or even with some college college education, they couldn't make a living in the parts of the country where they lived that paid anything beyond a minimum wage. They couldn't support themselves and their families, their children on the, the wages that they could earn flipping burgers. But one woman that he profiles went to New York one night, put an ad online and went home with $2,000 the next day and was able to then care for her child with that money Maybe if we had living wage laws, maybe if we had a national health care program, maybe if we had access to daycare, maybe if our economic system wasn't so grinding and unjust to people on the bottom of the ladder, she wouldn't have wound up doing prostitution through economic necessity or out of economic necessity. So some people wind up doing sex work because economically they feel they have no other choice. Some people are trafficked, some people are pimped, some people are exploited and abused. Either case, I think it's wrong, whether it's economic or exploitation, absolutely wrong. And what I really liked about this piece and really kind of blew my mind is it floated something that I've floated. I floated here on the show that we have to find a way out of this. We have to find a way that takes this market that's going to exist whether we like it or not and creates a framework that allows people to enter it as providers, as sex workers, but also people to enter it as johns and purchasers. In a different world, Coker writes, technology could be harnessed to reduce the dangers of prostitution. The University of Colorado Law Professor Scott Pepet has floated the possibility of a technology-enabled sex market where escorts and clients are all pre-vetted and predators are screened out. The law, however, is hostile to such innovation, Professor Pepet writes. It currently criminalizes not just prostitution itself but activities including technologies that advance or facilitate sex markets or in this case – Makes the sex market safer for the women we are all so concerned about being abused or violated or murdered, but also safer for the johns. I get letters every day. This is controversial. I get letters every day from men who wish to patronize a sex worker and are really on the rack, really worried, concerned, uh, torn about the possibility that they may patronize or have patronized someone who is – being trafficked, someone who's being abused, someone who's being used and exploited, as opposed to the independent contractor that everybody hopes to find. And they would like a way to identify women who are less likely to have been trafficked, less likely to have been abused, um, so that they don't have to feel terrible about what they've done by buying sex. And I've thought for a long time that there should be some sort of good housekeeping seal of approval, some way of some technology-enabled sex market where people can be pre-vetted and predators can be screened out but also trafficked women can be screened out. And if we created this, if we could funnel both the supply and the demand into this safer – not all – not anything is 100 percent safe, this safer format, this safer structure. We could create a legitimate legal sex market where people's needs could be met, need to make money, need to buy sex. While greatly reducing the chances that someone is being abused. If to see a legit vetted sex worker, you had to be vetted yourself and you had to leave identifying information, you are a lot less likely to kidnap and murder that sex worker. If you have an online profile, if you're a registered client, you are a lot less likely to kidnap and murder and to then be – a sex worker who goes through that system, you are a lot less likely to be abused. You're a lot less likely to be exploited. You're a lot less likely to be the victim of violence. It seems the rational thing to do to create this kind of system. If what we're worried about when we talk about banning sex work is the safety of women engaged in it, this is what we should be doing, channeling demand, channeling the supply into a space where it's safer for all involved. That means not just destigmatizing sex work but destigmatizing people who patronize sex workers. And how do you channel johns to this market? How do you channel clients to this market? Well, like I said, a lot of them really desperately don't want to purchase sex from someone who's being exploited or trafficked. They worry about it. Um, and they want to avoid it. So a lot of them would opt in. They would be like, awesome. If I do this, then I know I have an assurance. If I'm going to a woman who has this good housekeeping stamp of approval from this board, this agency that vets using all this new technology that's at our disposal, then I'm not exploiting somebody. I'm buying sex from someone who wants to be selling sex. This is her job, her career. It's her, the choice that she's made and I can feel better about myself. Then that's the carrot for a lot of these guys. Then comes the stick. If we create a marketplace, if we create this using these technologies where sex workers are vetted and their clients are vetted, anybody who buys outside of that system, you come down like 10 tons of shit on that guy. If you go through the the system, I don't know what else to call it. You go through this system, of course anybody who's underage is going to be eliminated. That's easy. We can eliminate underage prostitution quickly, simply and then you – penalize anyone. You should still punish Johns who buy outside this system that was created to make sex work safe for sex workers and to prevent people from being exploited or trafficked or prevent people who are underage from engaging in sex work. You say, hey, guys who want to buy sex, here you go. We have set this system up for you. You choose to buy outside this system that makes it safe for sex workers, makes your buying sex not contributing to anyone's destruction – or exploitation. You buy outside this system, yeah, you're in trouble. Buy inside the system, no penalties at all. Not illegal. Buy outside the system. Buy on the street. Buy sex from an underage minor. Buy it in such a way where you're likely to be purchasing from someone who's trafficked because you're going outside the system. Then you go to jail. That will funnel the demand into this system that makes sex work safe for sex workers which is what everyone says they want. They, everyone says – even people who are prohibitionists say they just – they're concerned about the safety of women. Okay. Concerned about the safety of women doing sex work. You should get behind a system like this because it will make sex work safe. You can't end sex work any more than you can end abortion. Ban abortion, you will have abortions. They will be unsafe. Ban sex work, you will have sex work. It will just be a lot more dangerous than it needs to be. There's a online debate right now roaring at my friend Andrew Sullivan's blog not really a debate, just an acknowledgement of people who do sex surrogacy, people who see profoundly disabled people, people who are paraplegic, quadriplegic, people who are incapable of going out and meeting someone or highly unlikely to actually meet someone. Not that paraplegics, quadriplegics don't meet people. They do. Um, Not that a paraplegic or quadriplegic can't have a relationship uh, with someone that isn't being paid to be with them. Many do. But there are people who are so profoundly disabled, so physically disabled. That really their only option to any sort of sexual intimacy and sexual expression is a sex surrogate. And sex surrogate is the $30 word for sex worker, for prostitute. And nobody really seems to have a problem with this. That if somebody is profoundly physically disabled, we can all get behind that person buying sex or sex being purchased for that person because it would be awful for that person to have to live their whole life without any sexual release or intimacy because of this condition. A lot of men who buy sex are profoundly disabled, socially disabled. They are so socially awkward that they cannot get sex any other way. That purchasing sex, paying a woman to be with them is the only way they can get that kind of intimacy and release. But because they are not quadriplegics, because they don't have MS, because they don't have parkinson's, because they're not paraplegics, we look at them and condemn them. When really all they're doing is the same thing. That someone who is profoundly physically disabled is doing. They're profoundly socially disabled, they're purchasing sex. Someone's profoundly physically disabled, purchasing sex, really for the same reasons. So, if we could destigmatize a lot of the reasons why people buy sex, if we could see people who are profoundly socially disabled as objects of sympathy to and drop those barriers and create that market that allows them to get those needs met, sexual needs, allows them to have some sort of sexual expression, some sexual intimacy in their life. We could make sex work safer. We would have fewer dead women turning up, wrapped up in burlap, buried in the sand on Long Island because it would be much more difficult to prey on the sex workers who are meeting those needs, who are providing a necessary service, who deserve better from the culture and from all of us than making their work more dangerous than it has to be, than the stigma we attach to it and throwing them in prison This is a coming social justice movement. This is about people controlling their own bodies. I see this as linked to abortion, as linked to gay marriage, as linked to marijuana, decriminalization. We need to do this. We've been in denial about this for millennia and people are suffering and people are dying. Women are dying because of the way we've set this market up. We set them up the way we've set this market up. And it's got to change. Finally, it's a terrific article uh, by Robert Kolker. I'm looking forward to reading the book. We're going to have him on the show if we can get him. It's called The New Prostitutes. It was in the June 29th issue of The New York Times. You should look it up. And now your calls.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old female, and I'm dating an older guy. He's 34, and we've been dating for about a year and a half. Um, I really love him a lot, and we have a lot of the same passions and like to do a lot of the same things. And the sex is excellent. Um, it's always really good. The only issue is that it's kind of quick, and it's been kind of quick for the whole time we've been dating. And at first, I was like, "Well, maybe it's just the new type relationship thing." You know, he hasn't had very many serious girlfriends in his life, and so I thought maybe that's what was going on. The trouble is that. What I like to do to get turned on really turns him on. And he attributes the quick sex to just being too turned on. But if I want to have a lot of foreplay so I can get to where I need to be, and he's already past the point. And so I guess I was just wondering if you had any advice on, like, what we could do that helps him really just last longer.
1: About 20 years ago, strap-ons really took off in lesbian land. Stores like Toys in Babeland, Open in Seattle, Good Vibrations really pushed them in San Francisco and they kind of swept the lesbian universe, the strap-on dildo or strap-on dolphin for the ladies who didn't want to have something that looked exactly like a penis. Um, And now strap-ons are kind of making the leap or have in the last five years, made the leap from lesbian land to gay land and you can go to places like – MrS.com or Oxballs and you will find uh, strap-ons or dick extenders or cock sheets, all these toys for people who want to have you know, bigger dicks or they want to have a stunt dick that they can use in the moment or they want to save their dick for later and but they really want to fuck the shit out of somebody so that if you – come too soon once the fucking starts, you can fuck for a while with a strap-on that looks exactly like your dick, the same size as your dick. And then when you're ready to jump in with your dick, you can jump in with your dick. Maybe that's what you guys need. Maybe what you need for your enjoyment for the sex to last longer is for him to use a cock sheath or a strap-on dildo in addition to his dick. So you have this foreplay. You both get really aroused. He's... That arousal gets you ready for a nice long fucking, but that arousal gets him to the point, that foreplay gets him to the point where once the fucking starts, he's going to come pretty quick. Well, then start the fucking, but don't start the fucking with his dick. Have a stunt double dick on hand. Have a sex toy. Have a strap-on. You can buy strap-ons to go over his dick. You can buy a strap-on that he wears alongside his dick. You can buy a strap-on that he can strap to his thigh, and you can ride that and keep going. And then when you reach the point where... You're getting close or you're reaching that point where you would like him to be in you and on top of you and fucking you with his own dick and you can work out the timing so that then he jumps in with his own dick and he comes. It's going to work out well for both of you. But as a straight couple, you kind of have to disinhibit about what sex toys and strap-ons mean. Like a lot of straight guys feel like if there's a strap-on in the room or an extra dick that their dick has failed somehow. Lesbians don't feel that way because there's no dick in the room and so – Dicks in the room are extra credit, bonus dick, special guest star silicone dick. Gay guys clearly don't feel that way about sex toys uh, and haven't for a long time. Butt plugs, dildos, whatever. But straight people have been slowest to kind of jump onto the strap-on bandwagon. But you guys sound like the perfect candidates to lead the charge and jump on first to the currently deserted straight person strap-on bandwagon. You will be the first occupants the first people to ride that bandwagon, get on it, and I think it'll help you.
3: Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a straight guy on the East Coast, and uh, I have a question for you about molestation. When I was a kid, maybe first or second grade, I had a friend who would forcefully compel me to you know, get down out of our pants and into our, our underwear and take our shirts off. And, roll around in his bed and, you know, rub genitals, and he, you know, would, would want us to kiss and that kind of stuff. And this has always been kind of a scarring thing uh, that I just pushed deep down and, and thought uh, that I shouldn't ever talk about or think about. And recently, this kind of came up in my life again, and uh, I've come to terms with it, sort of. I don't know if this is normal or if I was in some way sexually assaulted, and maybe that has informed the way I do with sexuality and relationships since. I, I talked about this with a, a dear friend of mine, uh, another guy, and he also said that something similar happened to him when he was a kid. And and so, is this just what kids do? Do kids just, you know, some hit puberty sooner than others, and? Uh, they force the other ones along and there really is no malice or harm behind this. And I should just forgive and forget and assume this is normal. Or, you know, is there some kind of sexual assault here? You know, am am I a victim of some kind?
1: I'm going to preface what I'm about to say with, you should unpack this, not with a friend, but with perhaps a counselor, uh, a therapist or a shrink, someone that you can explore your conflicted feelings about these early childhood experiences at, at greater length. But I just want to say that this is fairly common for kids to engage in this kind of sexual roughhousing, sexual play. It's also fairly common for one kid to be the initiator or the aggressor in a situation like that. Sometimes kids go along and they are left with ambivalent feelings for the rest of their life about that encounter or feelings of violation. Uh, you know, you wonder if there was – you know malice or harm here. And I think that there can be a situation that does lasting harm in which there was no malice. We can't look into the head of your friend in first grade and know what exactly was going on with him. I doubt very much that at six or seven years old, your friend was thinking, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to ruin him. And this is a mean and horrible thing that I want to do. And who knows what had happened to your friend, whether he had seen pornography, whether he had been sexually abused himself and was acting out uh, in inappropriate ways uh, with friends. It is true though that some kids very early on in life are curious about sex and curious about you know, the way they've seen adults roll around on top of each other in movies and television uh, and initiate this stuff without ever having been abused or sexually assaulted or victimized in any way themselves. It might help you to be more at peace with what happened to you if you give your – First grade friend, a pass—not a pass for the violation. You were violated. You feel violated. Uh, you were doing things you were not comfortable with. Um, you know, power dynamics and friendship left you feeling coerced, and all that—all that harmed you. You still sort of live with this and walk with this, um, and it obviously bothers you. You wouldn't be calling, but I think the pass you can give him is he meant—he meant no harm. But this wasn't coming from a place of of malice or a desire to humiliate you or ruin you or harm you, that he was just a stupid, young, sexually precocious or sexually abused kid and you got caught up in that and were the focus of that for him and it's a stone in your shoe to this day. And I think that you should talk about this with somebody at greater length than we can talk about this on the podcast, that you shouldn't pack your complicated, conflicted feelings about this. And it might help you to hear from a professional that this is very common, that a lot of people have these early childhood experiences uh, that are sexual in nature, whether they initiated them or didn't initiate them. And some people who've initiated them uh, who you know, could have been on the other side of this, your friend, also often later in life feel very conflicted about this, that even though they were the aggressor, they in a way harmed themselves as well. And they may live with the guilt and the shame of feeling like I have harmed someone else. I was a sexually precocious seven-year-old. I did this with my best friend where we fell out of contact a few years later. I get letters from people saying exactly this, fell out of contact a few years later and I don't know what to do. And all my life, I felt terrible about what I did. And I tell them to go unpack that with a shrink. And I'm telling you to go unpack this with a shrink.
2: Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a straight-identified female and a college student, and I recently uh, entered into a situation where I am a unicorn for a, a married couple that I became friends with through school. I was friends with the guy first, and then I uh, he brought me over to uh, meet his wife. And I guess... I've heard you say all the time about how I'm the unicorn, so I really can't fuck this up. But now that we've done this and it was really successful, I'm trying not to be a threat to the woman in the relationship because I really like her and I'd like to be her friend in the way that I'm the f- friend with the, her husband. I just want to know if how I can get to that point because right now it just feels like every time I hang out with them, it's like a high stress date even after we've done this because you know I don't really have a lot of money and when we're hanging out, they always pay for everything. And they, you know, will buy me dinner and breakfast and drinks, and which I appreciate. But I also feel like I'm a mooch who is, you know, gets all the good things out of it, like the sex and the free dinners and everything like that. But I don't know that I'm bringing that much to the table. And so I just don't know if I shouldn't. I should stop trying to be their friends and just try to be the unicorn who, you know... Shows up and gets you know everything that she wants out of it and provides the service for the couple, or if I should continue trying to even the playing field, or even how to do that.
1: Aren't you the thoughtful unicorn? Look, you're young. You're in college. Uh, you're broke this couple that you've become involved with in the unicorn role. They're a little bit more established. They have spending money and they like you and they want to have you around clearly for more than sex. They want to get to know you in a way they kind of want to date you and I think that you should accept their generosity graciously while acknowledging that you feel a little weird about the fact that you can't pop for dinner, that you can't pop for breakfast um, and that you appreciate that they are – you don't expect that they have to – And you certainly aren't expecting that every time or all the time. And then listen to what they say. And if they say, you know, we're happy to do this for you. We understand that you can't. But we'd rather have you along for breakfast than have you spend the night and then say, we're going out for breakfast. Here's some Cheerios. Go to town. And if that's how they feel about it, let them treat you well. And then find the ways that you can return the favor and treat them well in turn. And you're certainly treating them well in the sack – but you can make a big dinner for them one night. You can make a big salad for them one night. That doesn't cost more than 10 or $20 to make a big delicious salad with a lot of treats in it for three people. You can certainly swing that even as a broke college student. And with gestures like that, you can really be as generous to them as they're being to you in proportion to your incomes, their income versus your income. They take you to dinner every once in a while. They buy you drinks every once in a while. Your income, you make a big – sort of treat dinner for them every once in a while and it all works out evenly in the end and nobody has to feel bad or conflicted or bought and paid for.
4: Hey Dan, male, 22
5: from
3: the Northwest.
5: Been in a uh, committed relationship with my girlfriend for uh, going on two years now. She's 19. I get twenty 22 and um, everything's feeling really great. Uh, we've been happy, healthy, everything is totally normal. We're in a great relationship. Recently though, I've noticed that She has uh, an amazing sex drive. It's like way, way higher than mine is, um, which is awesome. No complaints there. But I've noticed lately that I have a hard time keeping up um, with her sex drive. And with work, I work a a full-time physical labor job. You know, there's a lot of nights when I come home and I'm just exhausted. and I'm not really, you know, in the mood to be fooling around and stuff like that, which is hard to say. And I've just found recently that she's been kind of taking almost an offense to it. Um, She might be thinking it's her. Anyway, it's one of things that we still have pretty regular sex, I would say, I mean, probably four nights a week. But I I think that it's starting to kind of, she starts to feel like maybe it's her fault that she's not attractive enough, that I'm losing interest. And that's totally not the case at all. It's really not. It's just that her sex drive is so, I mean, like, uh, insatiable almost. It's like I can't even keep up. And so I was just wondering if there's a way, like, i tried talking to her and kind of telling her, you know, it's not you, it's it's not anything you're doing, it's just I can't keep up and, you know, I have a lot more on my plate than you do, you have a lot more energy, things like that. But I'm just wondering how I can go about having a conversation with her that will let her know that, you know, it's not anything she's doing and it's not at all her, but it's it's me and um, any help
4: would be great.
1: I think you need to switch partners with the woman who called the show last week who was fucking her boyfriend four to five to six times a week and that wasn't enough for him. And I think you should run off with her and fuck her four times a week and your girlfriend should fuck her boyfriend 10 or 11 or 12 times a week, whatever it is that they both need with their high libidos. Tell your girlfriend from me that there is nothing less attractive than a person accusing you of not finding them attractive. You have a very legit reason for why you can't Fuck her 10 times a week. If you are working a full-time, back-breaking job, hard labor, breaking rocks down at the quarry, whatever, it's understandable that you will be exhausted sometimes. It's understandable that you will be exhausted sometimes. And she has to take that totally legit reason as the totally legit answer to why you can't fuck her seven nights a week. That said, she's clearly cornier than you are. She wants it more often than you're able to give it to her right now because of your work schedule or your back-breaking, rock quarry, rock. Pounding work. And so you need to accommodate her higher libido in some way. Either that can be permission for her to masturbate as much as you like. That can be laying in a bunch of vibrators and sex toys. And there are nights when she's probably going to want to get off. She may want to get fucked. You can't do that backbreaking fucking her labor. But you can hold her. You can play with her tits. You can go down on her for a little bit. You can masturbate with her as a marker that, yeah, we're going to totally fuck the shit out of each other this weekend. want we'll to get a good night's sleep. Um, but right now, if you're horny, you want to get off. Let's get you off. And that can take a lot less time and a lot less energy than a full-blown fuck session. So you guys need to find a little happy medium between the fuck sessions that you're too tired for and the nothing that leaves her frustrated. And that can be, as I've said to other people in this situation, a little uh, masturbatory assist where you are her masturbatory aid in those moments where you can't full blown fuck her, but you're willing to hold her, roll around with her a little bit, watch some porn with her, lay with her and in a relaxed and not too much pressure on you way, help to get her off.
4: Hey Dan, this is a 25 year old gay living on the West coast. I have a question about a relationship that's ending amicably. Uh, My boyfriend and I have been together for, a little over two years now, uh, he's in medical school. Uh, I just graduated from law school, and it's been absolutely terrific so far. Uh, we get along great. Everything seems to be on the right track, so to speak. The thing is, uh, I'm in the armed forces, and now that I've graduated from law school, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be coming back on active duty with the military uh, as a lawyer. I'm going to be stationed somewhere. Uh, not close, not close to here where my boyfriend is, and we both sort of reached the point where we realized that we're not willing to do long distance um, or anything of the sort. And you know, that this is going to be ending as soon as I leave in a couple of months. Here, uh, my question is, uh, what, you know, what, what, what's the best way of going about this this breakup? In the past, my, you know, whenever I've ended things with somebody, it's it sort of been I guess to put it frankly, because I don't like them very much, uh, here it's a little bit different. You know, everything's terrific, but circumstances are going to be separating us pretty soon. Along those lines, uh, once we do separate, I'm wondering w- w- what I should do with all of the, uh, the the symbolic things that have come out of it, the symbolic uh, practical, physical objects that have come from our relationships. You know, the stuffed the animals, uh, the little... You know, tokens—that kind of thing. I—I I, really—I I don't feel as good about you know bearing that away and and hiding it forever like I have with relationships that that ended on a on a less than than, than great note. So I uh, uh, really like to hear your advice on this, on you know how to go about closing a relationship that's ending on on good terms.
1: Stuffed animals? That was not where I thought you were going when you were hemming and hawing about mementos. But I thought. Treasured slings you bought together at IML or sex toys or great-grandmother's china or something. I didn't see stuffed animals coming. Um, How do you close an R that's ending on uh, on good terms because circumstances and the stage of life is pulling you apart? You don't close it. I'm not saying have a long-distance relationship. I'm not saying – Uh, stay together officially. But instead of feeling like you have to end it or throw these mementos away, why not just allow it to exist in a sort of state of suspended animation where you're not boyfriends anymore. You may see other people. He may see other people. But you're going to come home. You will have vacations. He will have vacations. Why not just allow it to be this thing that is still going on that is what it is Uh, which is you guys dig each other and you have good sex presumably and you have a shared affinity for stuffed animals, which is really perverse. And every once in a while you get together and you hang out and if you're single and he's single, you can still be boyfriends on shore leave or whatever it is you're going to get, depending on which branch of the armed forces that you're in, that when you're back in town, you guys can hang. And – Stop trying to define its end. Stop trying to to, to declare it dead and over. Who knows where you're going to be in two or three years? Eventually, you're going to get out of the military. Eventually, he's going to graduate from med school and he won't be tied down to one place. And who knows? He could marry your ass and wind up on your base or you could decide that you want to not re-up in the military and live where he is. If it's a good thing, it's hard to find a good thing. So if circumstances are pulling you apart, don't take that good thing out behind the barn and put a bullet in its head. Just let it be a good thing that you can pick up again, that you can resume again. So don't declare it over and don't throw those stuffed animals away. Just tuck them away. And when you're home, hang out. Fuck. When you're single, don't fuck if you're dating someone else or he's dating someone else but still see each other. Good things are hard to find and it may seem when you're 25 – that a four-year deployment is an eternity and not something that a relationship of only two years could weather but you will be surprised when you're 30 or 35 looking back on how short a time four years can be. I have friends who are together being together forever and uh, his partner went to med school in a different city uh, and that was four or five or six years early on in their relationship and they're still together. So don't don't declare this dead and Omer. Don't throw those stuffed animals away. Not yet.
6: Hi, I'm a 22-year-old male, and I have a question about uh, birth control. I'm getting being married to my fiancé in a couple of weeks, and, well, she wants me to come inside of her. But neither of us really want children. But she's not willing to take a birth control pill or have a IUD device or take a morning-after pill. Is there anything else that we can do to help prevent pregnancy? I'd like to hear your advice.
1: All right, I'm thinking girlfriend doesn't use birth control, doesn't want to use birth control, wants you to come inside her. How can you meet that need, that desire of hers for you to come inside her without risking a pregnancy? Thinking, think You could fuck her in the ass. How about that? You could totally come in her ass and you're not going to get her pregnant unless there's something disastrously wrong with her butt. Or you can – and I don't recommend this because I don't think the protection is enough – Uh, You can come inside her, and she can run out to the pharmacy or already have visited the pharmacy and laid in some Plan B, some emergency contraception, which reduces her chance of becoming pregnant by 88%. What that means, though, is that Plan B prevents, as they say, seven out of eight pregnancies. Are you willing to play those odds? And how often is she going to want you to come in her? Plan B is a really good backup, it's not foolproof. You can take plan B and still – you're rolling an eight-sided dice and you might actually get fucking pregnant. I would not come in her if I were you. Uh, Someone who is not using birth control, who does not want to be pregnant, who wants someone to come inside her because she fetishizes that load being blown in her is probably not ready for the responsibilities of parenthood. I'll just put it that way. But you have options. You have coming in her options like – coming in her ear and coming in her nose and coming in her mouth and coming in her belly button and coming in her armpits and coming in her ass. And I would come in all those places first if I were you before I came in her pussy.
0: Hi, Dan. I really love your show. Thank you for it. Um, I'm 24. I'm from London, and I have a question about mental health and relationships. I fell in love with a beautiful man last year, and we were really in love for about five months. Before I basically woke up one day and couldn't function, what followed was a complete nervous breakdown and clinical depression and psychotic episodes and nasty stuff like that and I hadn't experienced anything like it before Um, and I was eventually diagnosed with bipolar disorder. My boyfriend became my carer for the next six months and pretty much gave up his life. I was basically catatonic for most of it. Once I started being medicated with lithium, I became stronger, but I felt empty. And so I very suddenly ended my relationship with him. Something didn't feel right. And that was three months ago. He has since told me that while he was my carer, I was abusive to him. He felt like he was in an abusive relationship. Um, I would call him useless or boring. And that I would shake him or tickle him or pinch him when he didn't want it. And I really don't remember doing that. (laughs) And yet we are still best friends now. And he remains my main support by far as I continue to struggle with my mental health. And I'm having a hard time working out if this is a healthy situation or what we should be doing. I'm scared that we're making things worse for each other or that I'm somehow manipulating him or that we're making each other unwell. Um, Any thoughts?
1: Welcome. I'm glad that you're in a better place. I'm glad that you had somebody there beside you who could help you through this. I think, though, that now that you're on your feet and you're feeling more together, that you need to branch out. You need to find additional support in the world, whether from your family of origin or through some sort of social services agencies or other friends. You need to build a bigger support network so you're not wholly reliant on this guy, your ex – for all of this uh, uh, emotional or physical or financial, you don't mention that, uh, support. And I don't think you need to go cold turkey on him. I don't think that would be wise or healthy. It doesn't sound like that's what he wants. He's willing to stay in your life. He's still offering you his love and support. You should accept it um, graciously and gratefully with in your head the, the, the awareness that you can't go to this well forever, that you can't. Heap all of this responsibility on his shoulders solely. That you're going to need a therapist. You're going to need a a physician. You're going to need uh, other people in your life, other friends, other family members that you can rely on, that you can lean on, so the burden doesn't fall solely to him. And you can transition. Then Uh, you can keep him in your life. You can remain really good or even best friends. Maybe one day, if. The memories of how and when you were abusive fade, those times when you were Linda Blair with your head rotating 360 degrees around and pea soup flying in your mouth. If that fades away, uh, maybe he can tap back into what he loved about you or was attracted to you in those first five months that you were together before uh, this psychotic break happened, before you were diagnosed as bipolar, before these mental health issues emerged. And who knows? But that's down the road and you shouldn't really even think about that. I'm sorry I said it. And you shouldn't have this expectation that that's where it's headed. Just accept the love and support that he can give you and now that you're a bit more together, thanks to him, you really owe it to him to take some of the burden off his shoulders as I already said. You owe it to him to start reaching out and branching out and finding other people and other maybe perhaps other organizations or support groups that can provide for you some of what he has been providing for you over the last six months, that can do some of the heavy lifting that you need done to maintain your mental health and to stay on your meds and to stay healthy. Uh, So as a gesture to him, uh, to to thank him for all he's done for you, you need to find some other people who can do for you some of the things he's been doing for you. And then who knows what could happen then with you and him and your relationship and where it might go once things are a bit easier and he is less your caregiver and more your friend.
2: Hi, Dan. This is a 24-year-old woman from the Northwest. When I was 16, I got drunk at, a friend's house party. I passed her up drunk in a separate part of the house away from the party. I was very familiar with the layout of the house and I knew I'd be safe there, but unfortunately I wasn't. Four upperclassmen boys followed me up there and Mm -hmm. sexually assaulted me. My friend's mom was upset with me because she found me in that area and something in that room was broken. It was something that was important to her that was handed down from another family member down to her and she blamed me for it being broken. She insisted on coming to my home and talking to my parents and I about how she thought I had broke her stuff. I was too humiliated and embarrassed to tell them that I was getting raped, and that's how her item was really broken. My question is, should I tell my mother and my friend's mother... That in fact, I was not the reason why this shit was broken, that it was this group of four older boys who were raping me who broke it, or should I just keep carrying on like I have been for the last almost 10 years? It's also kind of a little bit more difficult to tell them because. My friend, who threw the house party, who was one of my best friends in the world, she passed away at age 20. So, I don't know if I should even bring up this shit and make myself look better or worse by doing that. I know you think the honest is the best policy in a lot of situations, but it's only complicated more by the fact that my friend has passed away. So... Please let me know
1: what you think I should do. Just based on the tone of your voice and the way you sound when you talk about these really painful memories, this trauma that you went through, this rape, I don't think you can keep carrying on like you've been carrying on for 10 years. I think you're kind of reaching a breaking point with this. Um, A detail for listeners and not the caller, the caller called a few times and Shared some more details including the detail that her best friend's mother blames her for her best friend's – that her best friend's mother blames her for her best friend's death, which is going to make talking about this, unpacking this, that much more difficult. It seems to me that you would need to enlist help, that you need to go to see a rape crisis counselor. Uh, The trauma based on this call and the others sounds – fresh and tappable. It doesn't sound like something that 10 years has helped you bury or heal or move past. You sound stuck in this and rightfully so to to have been raped and then unjustly accused of breaking some object, some trivial object. You know, I, I'm a nut with a house full of family heirlooms and if one got broken, I would be very upset. Uh, so I can certainly understand your best friend's mother's anger at the loss of this heirloom and her desire to blame you or punish you. Or I wouldn't go running to the mother of somebody who did that to me or my house, but I can understand her upsetness, right? But how galling it must be for you to have this woman swanning around in front of your mother acting like the worst thing that happened at that party where you were raped by four boys was some goddamn vase or tchotchka got knocked off a table or a shelf. How galling and insulting. And I feel for you, I ache for you that your embarrassment, uh, your shame, which is what your rapists relied on to get away with this crime and they probably have gotten away with this crime now. Statute of limitations has doubtless run out. There's not going to be any evidence. There's probably no way you could go after them unfortunately. But I think you do have a right uh, and I think you have a – a need to clear the air and have this out there to unpack all of this again, to to raise this subject again, to talk to your best friend's mother, to talk to your mother about what actually went down that night so you can get some support from the people in your life that you love, not just for the fact that you were raped and then blamed basically for your own rape and silenced by your your, your shame in that moment, uh, something that you shouldn't have been ashamed of at all. You were the victim. But then your best friend dies on top of all this and you have to walk with this for the rest of your life? No. You need to go see a rape crisis counselor. You need to speak to someone and enlist that person's help. I really think approaching your best friend's still grieving mother, she lost her daughter, is going to be difficult and delicate and not something you can do on your own. That's something you're going to need help with. Approaching your own mother, you may need help with, but you need to – Unburden yourself and you need to shift some of the burden onto the shoulders of the people in your life, your mother, who hasn't been able to be there for you because she doesn't know what happened. And if you need for your own sanity to tell your best friend's grieving mother what really went down that night, I think you should tell her that. You have been terribly victimized. You have walked with this for almost a decade and lived with this for almost a decade and it has eaten away at you clearly. Um, You know from pain and you know from loss. However shitty your best friend's mother was to you at that moment, unknowingly, she didn't know that you were raped at that moment. However shitty she was to you at that moment, however shitty she was to you when she blamed you for her daughter's death, which is a deeply shitty thing to do, I would hope that you can find it somewhere in your heart to empathize for her and for her pain. You... Experienced a tremendous loss of dignity, of bodily integrity, of control. You were brutally violated by those boys. And then your pain in that moment, your shame was compounded by everything that happened in its wake. And I would hope that somewhere in your heart you can empathize, not excuse but empathize for your best friend's mother's pain too. She lost a daughter. And she lashed out. She lashed out at you when she lost a fucking vase or chotchka or Hummel figurine or whatever the fuck it was. And then she lashed out at you again when she lost her daughter unfairly. I don't excuse that. In both instances, what she did was horrible. She couldn't have known when she lashed out at you about the fucking piece of heirloom chotchka, what you were suffering at that moment and how she was compounding your pain. She didn't know. That she then turned around and lashed out at you and blamed you for her daughter's death, she had to know. And that is far less excusable. But again, I would hope that as a victim yourself, as someone who has suffered yourself, that you can appreciate that she has suffered too. When you approach her with your counselor or your therapist and your mother to talk about what really happened that night and to get some closure on this. Not that you'll ever – Be able to walk away from this entirely, not that this will not pain you, perhaps, the rest of your life. But there are issues here that need to be resolved. There are truths that need to be told and need to be out there for your own sanity. And you need to find somebody who can help you share those truths with your mother and with your best friend's mom, too.
2: Hi, Dan. I'm a 23-year-old girl from a very small town in uh, the South. And what I'm calling about is in a situation that has to do with me. It it has to do with my my little sister. She's 17. Uh, She's, you know, just a beautiful, wonderful person. She's been, she's serial monogamous. She's always had a steady boyfriend, too, through high school, obviously. You know, she's a homebody. She's not, doesn't go out, doesn't, you know, do anything wrong. Well, I was at dinner with her the other night, and, uh, she informs me that she had had some, you know, female issues going on, so she went to the doctor, and her doctor told her that he was 100% sure that what she had was genital herpes. To tell a 17-year-old that she was by herself, it obviously upset her, but, you know, he took cultures or, or, you know, whatever to prove what he was 100% sure and had the confidence to tell her at that point in time and just send her on her way, you know. Thankfully, she hand, I mean she handed, handled it rationally because she really didn't believe that's what it was. Being in such a small town, like that would be rampant everywhere and every I mean it would just I mean, that'd be like a huge health risk in a little town. The doctor left to go out of town, so she had to wait 12 days without her results. And when they finally came back, thank God they were you know negative. She like had pulled this minor that she had had this life-altering new disease that would stay with her forever. And he was wrong. And so my question kind of is, I just want to know, like, what is your take on this? Have you heard of something like this happening before? As, you know, the South, we're kind of like the mob. If you mess with our family, then, you know, that's a big no-no. A part of me wants to go over there and just say to him, like, listen, that was ethically unsound, What you did, to say the least. If, if, if he had said that to someone else, and what if they had gone and jumped off a bridge? Or Because, you know, my, my little sister's boyfriend was questioning her, like, did you cheat on me, blah, 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 and obviously that wasn't the case, but any lesser relationship would have crumbled under that pressure. And now she would have had this, disease that would affect every relationship in her entire future. I just feel like that was very dangerous, and I feel like that was very unethical. So I just kind of want to know what your thoughts are on it.
1: Joining me by phone, Dr. Barack, a general internist and a friend of the Lovecast, one of our go-to docs, a frequent guest expert here on the show, whether he likes it or not, and sometimes it's pretty clear that he doesn't. Thanks for jumping on the phone, Dr. Barack.
7: I'm happy to be here, Dan.
1: So how... How many times does this woman get to punch her sister's doctor in the face? <laughs>
7: um, yeah, I mean, it sure sounds like he could have the doctor could have handled this better, and um, and you know this is a, a pe- people. It's a really, really mentally uh, difficult issue to deal with for. Is. It is, yeah, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's so, scary and it
1: scares people out of all proportion to its actual impact on. Almost everyone who has herpes life, that there's this stigma and this fear attached to herpes that exists out of all proportion to its impact on people's lives and their sex lives and their love lives. But still, doctors know that that's true, that people fear it out of all proportion, whether that's a rational fear or not. And to tell somebody, 17-year-old kid, oh, it's herpes, 100%, definitely herpes, let's run the test and I'm leaving town for two weeks. But would you call that unethical?
7: Uh, You know, it's it's – it's not good it's not good care it doesn't sound like good care uh you know it it, it sounds it sounds clumsy and uh and if i were her sister i would be pissed off yeah but but it's also true that the sister is doing that exact kind of overreacting about the issue of herpes just like you were just saying too mm-hmm. that her thinking was oh you know this couldn't be herpes because if it were herpes we would know it because it would be rampant in our small town and you know it probably is rampant in our small town and uh-huh. you know and she just doesn't know it i mean it it's herpes is uh, is a big part of the of uh, of sexual activity everywhere in the United States.
1: And she also seemed to be suggesting that because her 17-year-old sister was a serial monogamist, that this somehow protected her from herpes, that her sister wasn't the type of person who would get herpes when actually we know that a lot of people have herpes who are – In sexually exclusive relationships that serial monogamy actually opens the door to risk for sexually transmitted infections whether you're a good girl or a bad girl, a big town or a small town, a rural area or an urban area that there's yeah. no magic to serial monogamy or small towns that protects you from sexually transmitted infections. In fact, she says these in the South, quite the opposite. There's a lot of ignorance and a lack of access to basic care and basic information in the South that fuels epidemics of sexually transmitted infections in small towns yeah. and rural areas. Yeah,
7: but I mean and, – and, and she's also too – I mean for her to say that this you know, was a – this was a life-altering disease that would stay with her forever it is not necessarily the case at all. You know, that uh, most of the time, you know, pe- most of the time people will have one or more outbreaks, but then they do get less and less as people get older. And a, a big majority of the time, they go it goes away and people stop having outbreaks. And this is not something that is with people forever necessarily. And most and, people
1: who have herpes don't know they have herpes because they right. either had an outbreak that was so uh, minor that they didn't – they weren't aware of it or they never had an outbreak at all.
7: Absolutely. And, and the first time that they get it – could be a recurrence of the infection that they acquired years ago. And so trying to sort of track when it, when the transmission happened and who they got it from is is impossible.
1: So let's hash this out. So what we're saying is or what you're saying is that the doctor wasn't doing good doctoring at this moment, that what he said uh, was obviously not true. The test disproved his 100 percent certain and it was like kind of a lousy, shitty thing to say to somebody because of this fear – but this woman's anger on behalf of her sister is rooted in this irrational fear of herpes. So they're kind of both wrong. The, the yeah, sisters overreacting, yeah. and the doctor was doing not great doctoring at that moment. Yeah, but. and
7: and herpes is it's 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 a it's a super tricky, complicated disease in that it, it can look many different ways. It's it's hard to make a definite diagnosis of it, and even and the tests that exists are are fraught with uncertainty too. I mean, you, you can have a test result that comes back negative that might have been a false negative. I mean, listening to her call, I wasn't completely sure that she. It, it's possible that she did have herpes and, and that the test came back falsely negative. I mean, the, the test is hard. It, it's just, you know, and, you know, it's hard for you and I to try to to uh, second guess her and her doctor from uh, from many miles away and without seeing the rash and without talking to the doctor and hearing exactly what he said and exactly what she said, um, but I mean it, it's a it's a tricky disease to to diagnose. It is uh, it is hard to make a definite diagnosis of it either one way or the other that's not definitely not herpes or definitely is herpes and when the diagnosis is made um, it's really important to uh, to help people realize that this is something that you know more than a quarter of people in America uh, face and that it is uh, it's is a very minor part of their lives and that most of the time it eventually goes away and um, and that uh, and that uh and that condoms reduce the transmission of it um, and uh, and that it's uh you know it's it, it, there there's way more harm in, is done to people 's psyche than it's done to their genitals
1: so it 's only life altering in the way in which you react to it that the the the, the infection in herpes itself can be very minor, but your reaction can alter your life. If you choose to freak out, if you choose to ground your reaction to a a herpes diagnosis in the panic and the misinformation and the stigma, yeah, then it can be life-altering. But the actual disease, the actual infection, it's really not going to have that great an impact on your life. Uh, But rounding back to my original question, how many times does this woman get to punch her sister's doctor in the face?
7: (laughs) Oh, I would hate to be responsible for anybody punching any doctor's death, fan.
1: <laughs> but you won't even give us a number. You yeah, I, won't I would, give us zero. Yeah,
7: yeah, I would say, you know, uh, between zero and, and
1: two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got that uh, yeah. from Dr. Barack, General <laughs> this friend of the, the Lovecast. I think he was being sarcastic, though. I was being sarcastic, right? So I mean, it's like. The actual yeah. number of times you get to punch your sister's doctor in the face is zero. Is zero no, yes. Does it help sometimes for somebody to call a doctor with a little bit of angry feedback and say that was really shitty? Yeah, like, what you did to my sister, saying a hundred percent. Is there a way for her to give feedback in a calm way to this doctor that might improve his doctoring skills? Like an yeah. email? Would you welcome that? Has that ever happened? Le- a, a letter. You know, I, I think sending sending a letter would be reasonable. Um, but not and, mobbing up southern style and burning no, his house down. Right. It, like yeah. Right. Yes. Right, she shouldn't punch him. She shouldn't punch the doctor. There are no punching doctors on this show. Right, yeah. But you're a doctor. You have a no punching doctors bias. We'll have to get somebody who's not a doctor on the show to talk about <laughs> whether it's okay to punch a doctor. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Barack. Oh, thank
8: you, Dan. Hey, Dan. i a long-time listener, early 30s, living in the Midwest, and I've been in a relationship for about five years, give or take. About a month ago, I contracted um, gonorrhea from my partner, and at first, when I brought it to his attention, he acted very shocked and acted like he didn't understand how this could happen, but later on, when I kind of put the heat on him, he revealed to me that he was sexually assaulted at work, you know, he was in tears and, then you know, he had a very dis- detailed, uh, account of what happened and it was horrible And anybody and no one should never have to go through that. Um, but anyway, you know, we got it taken care of, the got Maria. got that taken care of, um, cause I work in that field, so it was easy for me to kind of, get both of us taken care of. But my question is now I just really, really want to use condoms. From now on, we were not using condoms before, but after that incident I've been very vigilant about um, us using condoms and he kind of isn't. And he kind of doesn't understand why I want to use condoms now. How can I talk to him about that? Like I said, I'm in my line of work. I'm responsible for helping people to engage in that type of dialogue with their partners. But I guess it's a little bit harder when the shoe is on the other foot serves speak. So, yeah, please help me out with that, Dan.
1: Do you believe him? That's really what it comes down to. You got gonorrhea. And you went to your partner with this. You guys are in a presumably monogamous relationship, sexually exclusive relationship. There should be no kind of entry points for sexually transmitted infections. You're not using condoms with each other. You're fluid bonded as they say in your line of work and mine. And you came down with gonorrhea and he pretended like you had cheated on him and then when you pressed the matter, it was clear that you hadn't cheated on him and that you were upset. He tells you that he was sexually assaulted at work and must have contracted – gonorrhea that way and passed it along to you and your desire now to use condoms, you're spooked uh, and perhaps rightfully so maybe and your desire to reintroduce condoms in your relationship, what that says to him is that you don't believe him, that he was sexually assaulted or that's how he got gonorrhea and passed it along to you and my question for you is do you believe him because – if he actually was sexually assaulted, if your partner was raped at work and acquired a sexually transmitted infection that way, then you know points of entry for future sexually transmitted infections are closed barring any future sexual assaults at his workplace. And hopefully whoever assaulted him at his workplace uh, isn't a coworker, isn't someone he's going to see again. Hopefully he's called the police. Hopefully he's reported this. Uh, hopefully his rapist is – on his way to prison and not a threat anymore and if all that is true, then you shouldn't have to use condoms. Then he's right. You shouldn't have to use condoms and your desire to use condoms with him communicates to him if he was raped and everything went down as he says and you believe him. What your desire to use condoms now says you're damaged goods. I see you as sort of toxic and dangerous and I don't want to put my dick in you without a condom on it anymore because ew and ick and you were ruined by this rapist. You say you're in the field of uh, of sexual health or sexual safety. So presumably you understand that gonorrhea is curable. Uh, There are drug-resistant strains that are emerging uh, and that's a huge problem. We need new antibiotics, new controls. People need to be safe. People need condoms which don't eliminate the risk but really reduce it significantly for gonorrhea. But this isn't something you need to continue to protect yourself from obviously and I would assume that you would know that. That if you've both been treated, then you are both gonorrhea-free. And so you don't need to be using condoms. With your partner anymore to protect yourself from the gonorrhea that he gave you, because if he's been treated, he is not still infectious, and if you've been treated, you are not infected anymore. So my question for you is: Do you believe him? Do you believe that he was raped, or do you think that he was cheating on you? And if you think he was cheating on you, and then he made this story up and performed up a storm and cried uh, to to sell it and cover for an infidelity that placed you at risk. Then it's not condoms you need to introduce into this relationship and maybe a couple's counselor you need to introduce into this relationship or a breakup needs to be introduced into this relationship. Because if you're with somebody who was raped, let's say he was raped. You're with somebody who was raped and you don't believe him and can't believe him and can't trust him and there's something wrong with you. But if you're with somebody who claims that he was raped to cover for an infidelity and the passing of a sexually transmitted infection to his partner with whom he does not use condoms and he was unsafe with somebody else, then there's something wrong with him. So you need to look inside. I am not there. I am not privy to your private conversations. I wasn't in the room when you and your boyfriend talked this out, when the truth came out. Uh, Only you can assess really how you feel about – These events and what actually went down. But what your desire to use condoms right now says to him is I don't believe you. I don't believe that it was rape, that I believe that it was cheating, that I am at continued risk of acquiring other sexually transmitted infections from you that you may get elsewhere. Because if it wasn't a sexual assault, if it was a rape, that's a one-off, never going to happen again hopefully. So it's not just about condoms. It's about whether you believe him and whether you can trust him. And what the condoms say right now is, I do not believe you, and I cannot trust you. And if you don't believe him, and you don't feel like you can trust him, if you think he's lying to you about something so deadly serious as sexual assault, then I have to wonder why you're not ending this.
2: Hey, Dan. So, I'm 25, and I'm in a monogamous relationship with my boyfriend, who's 28. We've been together for about a year and a half, and everything is really great, with the exception of our sex life. We're both pretty vanilla when it comes to sex, which is fine with me, but he always gets his, and I almost never get mine. And he has only given me an orgasm a handful of times since we've been together, and we fuck a lot. I don't remember the last time I got off with him, and he doesn't seem interested in or sensitive to this at all. I'm not very good at communicating to him what I want him to do when we're in bed together, frankly, because I don't really... No, up until very recently, I was pretty ashamed and self-conscious of my body and of my sexuality. And I had sex mainly just to please my partner for other unhealthy reasons. Um, I've grown up and I've opened myself to a sex-positive way of thinking, and I'm excited and I'm eager to explore my body with this newfound empowerment that I have but I feel pretty alone in my revelations. It would be amazing if he would show a little more curiosity or creativity or sensitivity towards our lovemaking. I don't know how to tell him that he's doing it wrong or that it doesn't feel good or that he's not touching me in the right place. He seems pretty naive and clueless when it comes to my body, and it hurts me that he doesn't take more initiative in learning what to do to make sure I come. And it makes me feel self-conscious when I need more and I need more longer and he doesn't seem to care enough to ask. So I'm getting increasingly frustrated. It's affecting our relationship and I don't like it. And I don't know how to deal with this situation. I think I'm being too timid or indirect because I've tried to talk to him about this and to give him pointers on what I like but it just doesn't seem to work so what do I do I don't want to break up with him I just want to feel like he enjoys making sex mutually enjoyable hello
1: hey it's Dan Savage
2: hey Dan how are you I'm good how are you
1: I'm good
2: thanks for calling me
1: Uh, my pleasure listen um the, 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 the phrase in your call, in your question that really leapt out at me, or the sentence was, I need more, I need more longer, he doesn't care enough to ask. Yeah. Have you cared enough about your own pleasure or about the survival of this relationship to tell him what you need? To be blunt? To be...
2: That's a good question, and I've actually been thinking about that a lot lately, and <sighs> I don't know. I mean, I tried. Um...
1: What's at risk if you are brutally honest? you just lay it all I guess, out. I
2: guess my biggest fear is rejection or like
1: Okay. So wait. That. Okay. Enough, uh, that's all I needed to hear. So you fear that if you're just brutally honest, if you lay it out, if you just tell him that what he's doing doesn't feel good, it's not working, you guys need to rebuild your sex life from the ground up, that he may reject you. Yeah. He may leave you. Okay. So the alternate, if you are not willing or able to tell him that for fear of losing him, is having this lousy sex with him for the next 50 years. Yeah. That's the other choice. Brutal honesty and a possibility of rejection or definitely this shitty sex that leaves you unsatisfied forever. Which are you going to choose? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I should
2: I should be being more honest with
1: him. Cuz you say, you say, you know, that Maybe I'm being too timid. Maybe I'm being too indirect. I guarantee you're being too timid. I guarantee you're being too indirect. And if you de-timid yourself, if you become direct, and he walks, good riddance. Because it means he can't grow with you sexually. And you will never be satisfied with him sexually or by him sexually if he walks when you open up to him about what you need.
2: And I I don't think he would – I don't think – I think that he would be open – to me, being open, I just think, I think you're right. I think that it is my issues, my own issues that
1: I need to. I don't think you're quite as sex positive or empowered as you think you are yet. Yeah, no, I don't
2: think
1: I'm I am either. I think you're on your way. The, the, the final hurdle for a lot of people is to look somebody in the eye and say this shit out loud. Is to look somebody in the eye and say, this is what I need, this is what I like, this is what I want, this is what I want to explore, this is what I want to do, these are the kinks I'm interested in. To really be brutally honest about yourself sexually with somebody while you look them in the eye can be... Hard and people can feel inhibited. It is scary. Write it down. Put it in a letter. If you're worried about it existing in a digital format forever and it coming back to haunt you, write it on paper. Have him read it and ask for it back and have the convo start that way. But you need to break through this because this – because only by breaking through this, only by telling these truths can this relationship survive for the long haul. Right? Okay. Can, can you see how self-defeating the trap you're in is? No, I, I don't want to yeah, tell him these things for afraid because I'm afraid of losing him. But if I don't tell him these things, I will definitely lose him.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it is. It's, it's starting to build up in me. The frustration is starting to build up in me and I can feel it and I don't like it. And I see where it's going and you know where I do it, want to do something about it.
1: You know so. where it's going? Because every time you have sex now, you're thinking, this isn't what I want. He's not making me happy. He's not satisfying me. I'm sure he can read that in your body language. You're going to become increasingly resentful and frustrated. Exactly. The sex is going to drop yeah. off or die and he's not going to understand why because he's not a mind reader and you haven't risked telling him that what you used to work, what used to seem to work doesn't work or didn't work but you pretended and he has this false impression and you need to – You need to yank the scales down from his eyes. You need to open his eyes to what you need and what will work. And only by doing that can you save this relationship. Right now, the trajectory, all signs point toward end if you don't open up and talk to him.
2: Yeah. (sighs) Thank you.
1: Thanks. So many people do this. They get the risk backwards. I don't want to say this because, you know, I don't want to risk losing the person I love and then if you think about it for a minute, not saying it is the real risk because if you don't say it, you're definitely going to lose the person you love because you will become so frustrated or so disgusted and that person will sense it and it will end. It will wither. It will die. The only chance a relationship has in a situation like this is honesty and you don't have to say it in a way that scalds him or or shames him. You don't want to by losing your shame around sex and your inhibitions, instill shame or inhibitions in him, be sure to yeah. f- frame it as a mutual growth thing. Like, I'm growing sexually and I want you to grow with me. I want us to grow together sexually. Here's where I'm at. Here's what I need. And if he's a decent lover, the kind of person you could be with for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, he's going to want to meet your needs. He's going to want to be that person uh, for you. I think, I,
2: think he would, I think he would definitely be all
1: about that you got to give him the chance to be and right now you're not giving him the chance to be the lover that you no. seem to think he could be oh, yeah. write it all down write it all down
2: okay Well, know <laughs> thanks for calling
1: sure thing good luck
2: hi dan i just wanted to call about episode 351 the woman with the Christian intern who refused to write the synopsis on the article written by a lesbian. Your response was spot on. Uh, what we need to know is that the extreme Christian right is poised for a fight. They are ready to. You're you're
3: absolutely right. They are ready to run to the news for any reason and call themselves martyrs and victims. So they are actually telling, you know, their followers, you stand up to us for these things, and if this happens, you
2: tell them no. And if and if you tell them if they make you, you come to us,
3: and we will, you know, expose them. So they're gearing up for a fight, and we just need to be good about not giving it to them.
9: I'm actually calling about episode 351. You had the woman who works in publishing, whose Christian intern wouldn't write a summary for a book by a lesbian author. And for once, I have to say, I disagree with you. Um, What you advised was that uh, she not say anything to her intern and give the intern a negative reference. And that would be true if this girl were a paid employee But I think with an intern, you have a responsibility not just to give them scut work, but to actually seize a teachable moment, and this is a teachable moment. I think the woman should sit her intern down and say, you're working in secular publishing at a secular publishing house. We're going to deal with a lot of material that you may not agree with, and it's your job to deal with it. And if you don't want to ever encounter anything that offends your delicate sensibilities, you should probably think about having a career at a Christian publishing house where nothing like that will ever cross your desk. But since you're here, if you're interested in doing this, Keep doing it and open your mind and work on whatever is given you and you might learn something.
3: Hi Dan, this is a call in
2: response to episode 351 with a caller whose straight male friend worries that he might actually be gay. One possibility is that her friend is suffering from a form of OCD. Um, normally, when we think of OCD, we think of people ritualistically washing their hands and making sure everything is clean, but there are other forms of OCD that are purely obsessive. And one type
0: of purely obsessive OCD has the sufferer obsessing about their sexual orientation. So a straight person would be obsessing over the fact that he or she must actually be gay, or a gay person would constantly fear that he or she is actually secretly straight. So if this is the case for this guy, his friend telling him you might be bisexual, whatever, is just going to set him on a path of new, obsessive thoughts. Instead, the next time he brings it up, the caller should probably urge her friend to see a therapist who can diagnose him and come up with an appropriate treatment plan.
3: Thanks.
6: Hi, Dan Savage. I have a response for the tech-savvy at-risk youth who saw a crow snap up an unused condom. since, As you pointed out, You're a wealth of knowledge about sex and relationships, but you haven't studied bird augury. And I happen to work as a fortune teller. So I thought I would try and help. If there was only one single crow present, then according to the folk custom of counting crows, this indicates sadness is on its way. A crow stealing a condom would suggest that someone is telling half-truths to the tech-savvy at-risk youth in order to deceive them. And they just need to be more careful with whom to place their trust. Just be a little smarter When agreeing to anything, though, crows aren't the most malevolent bird omen you can have. They're just tricksters. If you want to go really ancient Greek style with this and the tech-savvy ad-risk youth needs to think back and try to remember if they had asked any questions out loud before they saw this, in which case the bird is seen as an answer to that
8: question. Hope that helps.
1: And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. We want to thank you again, everyone who subscribes to Savage Lovecast Magnum. We really do appreciate your support. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. Follow me, Dan Savage, on Twitter at Fake FakeDanSavage. Buy my new book, American Savage, in stores now. And me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy, we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.